Hello and welcome everybody to the Care Home Option podcast series. I'm Gabriella Wills and with me as always is our producer and co-host Drew Rice. Hello Gabriella, hello everyone. Today's podcast is another exploration with somebody who experienced care on a personal uh, level. Um, David is hosting us today at his home and we'll, we'll go together through his experiences, which I'm sure will be interesting um, to all of you listeners. David, thank you again for inviting us here to tell us your story um, and the story of you caring for your late wife, Frances, who sadly passed away in March this year. Um, you cared for her and, as you told me just before we started, uh, she had dementia. And please tell us, first of all, a little bit about Francis and yourself. Um, thank you for inviting me. My wife Frances, uh, we were married for 50 years. I'm afraid on the 50th anniversary she didn't really know that she was, but uh, we were, and very happily married with three children and eight grandchildren. Frances was a social worker all her life. Um, after she left college, she first went to work for an organisation called Task Force, which was home visiting and home care for old people. Ironic, somewhat ironic. Her next job was at, uh, as Lady Almoner, which is an ancient term for social worker, at um, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson Hospital, which was a maternity hospital for, for women. She was there for, for some years. She went to LSE, where she did a um, qualification in social administration. And then following that, she did a counselling diploma very early on during the 1970s. Um, she set up a whole counselling service in Hampstead, uh, Hampstead Community Centre, for some years where they employed lots of people who couldn't actually get first jobs because one of the problems with most professional people is getting your first job. Uh, later on, she pioneered counselling in general practice. She was one of the first counsellors to work in general practice, helping um, offload some of the problems that uh, were not actually physical but were patients who came in really just to resolve other, other matters. When she retired, she then became a trustee and later chair of Jewish Women's Aid, which was um, um, an issue very close to her heart. She was a very strong feminist and very strong believer that women should make their way in the world on an equal basis, unfettered by the uh, um, bullying of men in particular. So it was very much a labour of love there. Um, around, I would say... 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, she came to me and said, I'm standing down as chair. And I said, why? She said, I don't know why, but I'm not, I'm not up to them, up to the scratch. Um, however, dementia came, uh, you know, dementia came into our lives uh, probably at the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s. Uh, Frances' mother, who um, was from Riga and came to England to study English in 1937, married my father-in-law and never saw any of her family ever again. Um, during the very end of the 80s and early 90s, developed uh, what they call, I think, multi-infarct dementia. And Frances, uh, from that day on, was haunted by the fact that this was going to happen to her. She had said to me on many occasions, and meant it, 
that if it happened to her, she wanted me to take her to Switzerland. Um, however, that doesn't work quite like that because Switzerland won't take you unless you can say on the day that you actually want to do it. And sadly, if you're demented by the time you get there, it's not credible. So there's not quite that way out is not really there. Um, everything was fine. And one of the issues I would say with dementia is that until you actually have a diagnosis, you carry on as if there is no diagnosis and you don't necessarily notice all the signs. In retrospect, you can see signs quite a lot earlier. Frances got um, diagnosed with, um, she had some bleeds and uh, bruising that just wouldn't go away. And so she had a blood disorder, but at the same time, there were one or two other issues. And we went to have her tested um, what now must be nearly six years ago. So how old was she then? Just about 70. She would have been just seven, just 70. Um, however, now in retrospect, looking back and talking to uh, my, our children, that there's no question that there was very strong evidence of her uh, diminishing or being diminished, um, probably a good five years before that. As I mentioned to you, her telling me that she didn't feel she was following was basically not the fact that she was tired or getting older, but that was probably um, cognitive problems that she was having um, or beginning to have. When we were outside of this house, which we have been in for 46 years, so it's a house that we've been, we, you know, we, is part of us really, she would struggle to actually adapt to a new setting. Um, we were in holiday in Italy, the whole family there, and she was struggling with um, with finding a way around the house, with um, getting the meal together, with the noise of the little children. And she was a most amazing mother and grandmother, so that wasn't necessarily natural. But one just thought it was, you know, growing older, you know, I think I was in denial a lot of the time, which is a barrier to, because the early the few things that they're finding now only work when when they start earlier and at very early stages. So I think that's something that nobody really acknowledges, and that is that half the people just will not be identified at that point. So is it right that the diagnosis came in a way only because the bleeds that she had, you went to check out and then they realised there was something else? No, or? no, I think it was a combination of that. It was to do with that but uh, that wasn't the the sole reason i think um we were getting concerned that 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 it that that this might be the case and um we went for tests um francis was um her reaction to it as a person was she didn't give in to it she was very angry about it which wasn't really helpful at the early stages i think it might have helped her in fighting it but um Certainly in the latter stages, it was, um, it was definitely worked against her and against all of us, really. Before we go into the details, sure. how long did she live with dementia, knowing that she had? So the, from the, the diagnosis, five years. And we will get to this um, sure. in due course, but you mentioned to me that she lived at home almost until the Well, I, I had promised her. You know, then in the event that, uh, because uh, as I said to you, as soon as her mother had it, we, um, you know, she it was something that preoccupied her quite a lot. 
So we had talked about it, and I had made her a promise that I would keep her at home, which sadly I just literally five weeks before she died, we her, every part of her, the connections of her brain to her physical functions was breaking down, and we physically couldn't. About two months earlier, she couldn't get up the stairs. She couldn't, you know, the brain message to you know, lift your leg or whatever, it wasn't working, so she was sleeping down here. Um, and then it came to a point we couldn't feed her because uh, so at that point it was, it was just impossible to keep her at home. It wasn't in her best yeah. interest. Uh, so before that, but the, the four and a half years uh, of her living here in her home with you, how did you care for her? Was it you? Did you have help? Um, well, it was what did it mean It was just for me for the first three years of the five years between that. Um, and just by coincidence, really, t of timing, literally one week before um, the lockdown for COVID, um, I took in Mary, our carer, not because I needed help with Francis, but because Francis would get angry with me for doing the things that she used to do. It was I was invading, and, and, and it meant she had to acknowledge she couldn't do it. Whereas if you employ someone, it's slightly different. Um, so I was doing all the cooking and I was doing most of the cleaning and I was doing that, which I, d I really didn't mind doing. But every time I would go in the kitchen to do the cooking, and Francis would come in and then we wouldn't have, you know, and it, it would upset her. So it, that was the reason why we took someone. And, and at that point, she didn't need any didn't need personal care? care. No. no, she didn't need any personal care, really, I would say till the last year of her life and even then for a good bit of that I could have done it yeah. and, and did do a lot of it. You explained she was a very active uh, professional busy person with obviously lots of has achieved a lot in her life how what changes did you see of course there are reduced cognitive abilities which oh, she huge changes, huge changes she had a she was a feisty, um, funny, very lively person socially. Had a terrific number of friends, very close. And people gravitated around her. She was the centre of attraction wherever we went. And um, a lot of that, dis you know, was slowly disappearing. You, know, you, didn't, you don't notice it on an incremental basis, but when you look back and you think, is that that person? No, that's not quite that person. That's that person less 20%. That's that person less 30%. That's an angry version of that person. It's not the same person. And how, what, what did you do in those first, let's say, three, four years? So before it came to when she couldn't well, three, really three, four function. years, to some degree, we carried on our lives as normal, as, as best we could. Um, we travelled, okay. which wasn't easy, but, but we travelled. I, mean, I would always make sure there was a card in her bag with the address where it was. I had this somewhat comical images you know when you arrive at an airport and you go to collect your case off the carousel and if you're first off there's always one case going around from the previous <laughs> flight yeah. I got the feeling that Frances would be sitting on the carousel and I'd never see her again she'd be going round and round the carousel I mean that was a funny thing but it was one that she and I talked about so I had to make certain adjustments but we carried on we still we, we had two or three holidays they were they were not easy she didn't adjust and I think people with dementia, from what I, I hear anecdotally in my own personal experience, is they don't adapt to change at all. 
you know changes that they need to be safe in you know where they where they are so um but um we managed to do we managed to do quite you know we still had a quality of life it wasn't what it was before but it was mm. still a good you know, quality I, I would have settled for that okay and friends did friends kind of she had the most amazing group of friends actually of five or six friends who literally came even when she was shouting at them and not you know and unpleasant to them they kept coming and looking after her. but what you invest is what you get back you know yeah some people find it hard to confront and i understand that and you know i mean i i did, i i found you know different people behave differently react differently to these circumstances some people are able to are able to uh, accommodate that and others aren't and it's not good or bad it's just everybody's different and we obviously explore a little bit more about you um as the main caregiver but i'm just kind of looking a little bit more again to understand what were you able other than the travel on a day-to-day basis at home were the things that Frances was able to do that meant for her that she was still a person who is has some independence or some contribution you said she couldn't do the cooking or wouldn't do the cooking what what did she do well she was doing most things to be honest until a couple of years before she died um not the same way or as well as before a meal would take a long time to get together and it wouldn't necessarily arrive at the right time but um which is the reason why I might intervene so you know there's always a, a fine balance between caring intervening and allowing things mm. to go i like to think that perhaps i got some of that balance right but i'm sure parts of it not but certainly in the last 2 years i probably didn't leave her side you know for 2 years really so tell us about that kind of that big change what happened in the last 2 years what was the change in her and what did it mean for you together or? well the changes were her really how much more dependent she was in and also making sure that she like we 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 literally walked every day you know we would go out around the heath every day uh, for an hour and a half at first you know very well certainly by the time the the two, sorry it's quite easy to calibrate because it was two years of lockdown um she died you know in march the 19th which is roughly when lockdown started you know two years earlier so because of lockdown i suppose my caring was slightly different because of lockdown because there wasn't the possibility to get other people involved yeah. so um to a large degree we were in a little bubble here i'd be in the house with her the whole time and mary would be here as well so that was some spreading of the load so that's the first stroke of luck for the timing the second one is our house is ideally suited for um covid visiting because our garden is in the front of the house so nobody has to go through the house to come and see us um and um the summer was very nice that that summer so the children would come in the garden we would open all the doors and we'd be inside so we weren't completely isolated you know once as as the um the regulations eased slightly we had a fair bit of contact um with them and that was very very important for frances very sustaining very helpful although increasingly she found the little ones um hard to cope with 
And you mentioned before that she had that fear of um, having dementia in later life. And when she was diagnosed, but as time passed through there, do you do you? Was she always aware of that and how did she talk about it? She was very, very angry all the way through about it. I mean, and it got considerably worse in the last year. Was that verbal or how how did she express that? The different phases, but certainly in the last year she would get annoyed and she would get aggressive as well, very aggressive towards the end. Um, I think largely because she was just frightened. I mean, I don't think... I don't think it's just anger. I think it's also fear. Um, so it, throw things? Was it anger at you or anyone or well, Mary, well, the carer? Well, it, it will always be focused at me because I'm the person closest to her. And I, I understood that. It wasn't, yeah, yeah we, got, we got married because we loved each other and we loved each other every day for throughout our marriage, thank God. You know, I'm mm. blessed that way. And, and that helps because, you know, that love is like an investment pot and you hope that you've put enough into that pot that when you have the problem that we had, you know, when that person's disappearing and you have to care for that person, that there's enough investment to draw on. And um, thank you know, thank God there was. Yeah. Um, but um, she was very angry, and a lot of that was focused at me. I think it was also focused at the fact that she was dependent on me, mm. because she's a fiercely independent girl. You know, she she. I mean. You know, we actually had our own separate bank accounts. You know, she didn't want anything to do with mine. You know, she said, you know, it doesn't matter if yours are bigger or smaller than mine. I don't want it. I want mine and I'll do what I want. You know, she earned money all through her, all through our marriage. And, you know, f- to pay for the little things that she wanted that, that she never, she never wanted to ask me for something. And, that, and she never did, you know. Um, but um, so, so losing certain. her independence was was a source of great uh, heartbreak for her. David, can you tell us how you responded to her upset and anger? How did you deal with that when it started to happen more frequently? Well, there's a tendency, I think, and certainly early on, to rationally debate the issue that's being that she's angry about, she's upset about because there's usually no rationale behind it. Very quickly, I realised that the rational path is is a path to a complete waste of time, and it will only exacerbate the situation. So, in France's case, I think we probably use distraction a lot. Mm. You have to try and bottle your own feelings up when you're trying to deal with someone else's, I think. You have to leave your own outside, which I didn't find too hard, actually. I think it's that much harder for people with big egos. It's a bit like being the chairman of something. (laughs) Being the chairman of something, if you have a big ego, is very hard. Being the chairman of something, you have to leave your ego out of the room because you've got people around a table who've all got their own egos. And if you bring yours in, it's always going to be in conflict with the people around the table. It's going to conflict you in the way you hear what, what people say. So I think I, because I don't really have a big ego, I think I probably, that probably helped me cope with it. So, David, you, you talked about, yeah, the importance of you being able to 
put your emotions and feelings on on pause, on hold, while you had to deal with whatever Francis was expressing. But during those maybe three years, if we say the last two were... I would say the last two years were the... The last two years. How, how... I hope you didn't, or did you bottle your emotions the whole time, or did you find ways of somehow dealing with them and what were those ways well in hindsight it's it's easy to see a pattern it's much easier to see a pattern than at the time so there's no question that that I had to put my feelings or my reactions to my feelings in particular because you can recognize feelings but your reactions to those feelings they're almost separate you know you can feel sad but it's about whether you've got the time to address that sadness. I certainly feel that I put that to one side, but by some complete accident, I happened on a medium by which I could find a vocabulary to begin to understand the way I felt. On March the 20th, I think it was, um, 2020, um, my granddaughter was taking her A-level English. She's an extremely clever girl and frighteningly well-read. And as a child, we used to read together. She'd snuggle up to me and we would read whatever it was she wanted to read. It would be poetry, it would be early books and everything like that. And um, we were isolated from her because Frances had a blood condition as well. Um, and we weren't able to see her. But I think at that time, every, nobody thought it was going to be for more than a few weeks yeah. lockdown. Um, she was very disappointed that her A-levels were cancelled because she said, I don't want to be... I don't want my fate to be in the hands of my teachers. You know, I'm going to get the t decent marks, you know, because, I'm, because I'm, I've done the work and because... And I don't want my teachers to have to tell me what they think I can have. And she was very upset about it. So I phoned her up and said, look, we need to stay in contact and I'll read to you each night, thinking it would be a couple of weeks. When I got to poem number 93, I think it was, in July, because we did it every day, it was a very simple poem. It wasn't a particularly... A, it was quite a wise poem, but not a particularly piece of great literature um, by a famous poet called famous Lebanese poet called Khalil Gibran, who you've probably heard of. Yeah, the prophet. The prophet. The, that, uh, um, and um, it talked about the inability to solve all problems. And the male role in, in, in our biological evolution is to protect and feed. Mm -hmm. you know, the, the female role, I'm sorry if this sounds politically incorrect but the female biological role is to have the baby to nurture the baby Until now as i said that may be politically incorrect but i think it's biologically true yeah. in general across the species and this poem sort of shouted at me that actually there's sometimes you can't actually always solve the problems of the people around you you know i'd spent probably 50 years of our marriage solving problems really that's what life is life is about how you solve and deal with problems, and um, and I like to think that I've dealt with most of the problems that have come my way uh, reasonably well uh, for the children and otherwise. But it was the first time I became aware of the fact that here was a problem I just could not solve. I couldn't build a mountain, as she said, for her. Um, and 
that was deeply painful. That was the, probably the most painful thing that I think, the most painful emotional experience that I think I'd felt all that time, that sudden realisation and the need to accept it, which was hard. It must have been... You talked about her fear. I mean, that must be quite. It, it was. Scary I, I, I as well. actually felt. I, I, I'm sure this is probably. It's a bit like men say. You know, when a woman's in childbirth, they say, "Well, well, I get a cold as well. It hurts." You know, my role. I couldn't. I couldn't conduct the role that I was biologically born for. Okay. Uh, but getting back to the original subject about, I found that through the words of poets, writers. I felt that they gave me a vocabulary, actually, uh, and uh, the ability to perhaps touch my emotions in a way that I, for the first 75 years of my life, I'd not actually hit. So I thank Frances for that, actually. I would not have been, you know, she's helped me move, helped me move on in another way, in her own way. She's helped me move to another, to another yeah. place. Yeah. And apart from your poetry readings and discussions with your granddaughter did you look for other sources of support for yourself uh, friends professionals where did you where did you find your own respite and apart from knowing that you were doing the best you could for Francis who who else was there to to help you I've always felt very um, alone in this world and I don't say that in a sad way. I say that actually in a very celebratory way almost. Everyone is alone, to my mind. My way of looking at it, there is no one who is not alone. Um, the celebration acceptance of that is something different. I've always felt that at some point or other you have to, you have to resolve it within yourself. No one else can resolve these things for you. What I think people can do for you is... You know, that word, a listening ear, is a very good... You know, when you say a problem out loud, it always seems smaller than when you say it inside your head. I don't know whether you found yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I can relate to that. Yeah. Francis always said, and I've always found that, whenever I went in my business time, whenever I went for advice or went to talk to a mentor about particular issues, good mentors and good professionals don't resolve your problems. What they do do is help reflect back to you what you're thinking and help you order it by the fact that, number one, you're saying it out loud, and number two, they might guide you as to where you go to explore those things inside Ask yourself. you the right questions. But at the end of the day, you have to resolve it yourself. At the same time, I don't think I shared a lot with friends because I'm not sure I shared a huge amount with myself, actually, for a lot, a lot of the time. But about nine months before Frances died, she, she went to a therapist. We found her a therapist, wonderful girl. Um, she really was terrific, special, a specialist in, in, in dementia. Frances used to go to her every week and just help talk. You know, talk. I, I have no idea what she said, um, but I see, you know, having talked to Frances about clients in general, I hope she talked about our relationship and all of those things and everything that, that really mattered. Around nine months before she died, Frances couldn't really put it together. She couldn't get, she couldn't tell you what was really going on. But I, of course, knew what was going on because I was here and with her all the time. So I asked the therapist, I said, could I come with Frances and I can help her articulate to you 
what what she's going through and what's happening. She said fine, and for the next three or four months, I went with her and Frances would talk and just I would sort of help her if there was something she was missing. It came to a point about six months before she died when she really had nothing to say to her. I mean, she, you know, she couldn't really articulate anything and it was really just practical things that were happening. You know, if you assume you start off with 100% of yourself within the first five years of her dementia before we had a diagnosis, perhaps 25% went, the last 75% went in the last five mm. years. And by the time, six months beforehand, there was the occasional recognition. There was a one wonderful moment after um, lockdown opened up there was a day thing and we went there and it was for the carer and the thing. Well, I took her to Francis there a couple of times and she really hated it. She really didn't want to do it. And she looked at me and the look on her face was the last lucid thing I think I saw of her as if to say, David, what the hell are we doing in this place? Yeah. You know, and she looked at me with us and I knew I had to take her out. So during her conscious period, but I said to the therapist at that point, do you mind if I come once every couple of weeks or maybe two or three weeks and just relay to you what's happening and you can perhaps guide me as to that sort of thing. That was not, I realise subconsciously that was not what I was saying. What I was saying is, do you mind if I come? Mm. Mm. Right. And I continued going there and I go there even now, I go once a month and just to, mm. because I think in the year after some, you lose someone. You are all over the mm. place emotionally, all over the place. Well, we will want to hear more about that. Was there ever a time that she either lost the ability to speak, you know, verbalise? Um, and also were there times where she was conscious but didn't recognise you or others? Um, or yes. She... Uh, towards the end, she didn't mm. recognise me. I used to go to the care home. and I went down every day and I'd read to her for about three hours because my voice calmed her down. But I don't think she knew who I was. The decision for her to go into a care home, you mentioned before, obviously it was, you couldn't cope, but obviously it wasn't good for her anymore uh, to be here. So tell us a little bit more about that. And I would want to hear how you felt about that decision. It's the worst day of my life. I can't even begin to describe it to you. I've never felt so empty, bereft, and um, whilst it was completely impossible to keep her at home um, without turning this place into a semi-hospital, um, I'd made a promise to her to keep her at home, and it broke my heart. I've, I, I, I. In all 77 years of my life, I cannot relate to any moment in my life that even begins to approach the pain that I felt that day. Did you feel guilty? Yeah, for a moment. I don't, I, people say, you know, how are you now? And, and then I say, I'm fine. And they say, no, 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 David, how are you? You know? <laughs> really? I say, I told you, I'm okay, you know? And if I wasn't okay, the subscript is, if I wasn't okay, I wouldn't be telling you. Um, but the truth is, I am okay. I mean, I'm on my own, and, and after 50 years with someone you love, it's something you miss terribly. You know, I think they say that people with good marriages are more likely to have a second one than people with bad marriages. 
you know, or people who are ha happily. But I have no guilt because there was nothing I didn't say to Frances. You know, there's nothing she didn't say to me. There was nothing unresolved. There was nothing unresolved. There was that day when, which was just awful. I just can't, uh, mm. you know, you, they're often when you say, you know, you think, you know, let it be me, not her, you know. Um, anyhow, can't change what happened. No. And the care home, you said, was, is quite a, a considerable um, journey for yeah. you, but you, you visited... Six days a week I was there, and I would be there for anything between three and five hours. I, I saw a care home like no one else sees it. Other than those, yeah. Well, the people in it yeah. don't really see it because no. they're, you know. And I know that personally it was very difficult because this is your wife, the person you love, the person you want to be with, uh, the person you made the promise to. But if you can, if we can separate that, was it what you needed? Did the home do what you couldn't, for obvious reasons. Well, they did what I couldn't do, unquestionably. Generally, it was, you know, they did they, they do a very, very good job in a very, very difficult circumstances. Yeah. But at the end of the day, caring is about an individual person and how they look after another individual person. It's not mm -hmm. about businesses. It's not about charities. It's about the individual one-to-one -one relationships. And some are excellent, some are amazing, some are poor, and some are substandard. And that happens everywhere. She got better care than she could have got here. Whether she got the love that she would have got here, I don't know. But What did you do, if anything, to try and be able to leave her there after three or five, four or five hours and come home and, and trust that they will look after her? What, how did you try and make that happen, if at all? Well, I had a relationship with the, the carers there. She had one-to-one -one care as well. Mm -hmm. which she had to have because of her hostile um, behaviour and because she just needed it. Some of the carers were better than others individually, mm -hmm. um, but because I was there for so much of the day, every day, I got to know all the people there. I also saw all the problems that they faced, a lot of which, are, you know, the COVID ones, they just didn't mm -hmm. have staff a lot mm -hmm. of the time. They certainly physically looked after... We could not have looked after her physically at home like that. Like that. Uh, emotionally, mentally, I don't know. I, I, mm. As I said, it's not something. I mean, I have given the care home all the feedback, positive, very a lot of positive stuff, and the things that I feel that they, because I had a unique view of the of the yeah. home, but I think they were outstanding in terms of, you know, overall, I would say they were outstanding. Yeah. I don't think it's possible to be perfect in this situation. No, no, it's every not. Every patient, uh, when you look at the challenges they face, mm. every patient that's there is different and has different needs, you know. And, yeah. and you know, one, one hates to say it, but you get to like certain people and some you don't like. And if you don't like someone, it's not as easy no, to, to, let them. to relate to them, whoever you are. I mean, you know, whether you're a nurse, a carer, you know, whatever you are, it's much, much harder to do it when you... Mm. So, boxes of chocolates were helpful. And that's that's a legitimate way. <laughs> no, just to let people know that you appreciate them. Yeah. A box of chocolates is meaningless, you know, because 
has no value really other than hope you put on weight but it, the fact that you've actually gone out and got mm. it and means that you show them that you actually appreciate what they're doing do you notice them? even if they're even if they're not doing it the way you wanted to do it but that they are doing it and they're yeah. doing it to the best of their ability they were good they're, you know as i said the home was as as if you have to have this yeah. sort of thing you know then it was okay but we, we we after after she passed away we brought her home before before she was buried so she was here overnight before she went and that was a product of the fact that mm. we never wanted to leave in the first place and did that help in a small way i mean of course well, there were some lost... there were some angels who helped us during the night as well okay and a few others who who helped us but having her at home before um she went to her final resting place was was meaningful okay it sort of dealt with the home as a parenthesis rather than as yeah. a, an open it was a closed parenthesis yeah. rather than an open one yeah and were you or somebody else with her when she passed or about four you? days before she died she was taken into um i think it's st george's hospital mm. hospital near near the home and i we rushed down there she was in a and e and immediately the palliative care team came to see us so we were we were we we felt that she should um, be allowed to to go so i slept and was with her solidly from that wednesday till she died on saturday the children were with her and, and her brother was with when she died we were all we were all there this must bring some comfort or closure or it, of course it, bring, of... it does bring comfort some comfort i mean in as much as I was found I, I I France and I went to India a couple of times and on one holiday we went to um a most amazing place called Varanasi which you may have heard of yes, it's very famous it's it's on the Ganges and yeah. it's a very deeply spiritual for lots of people when you get there it's deeply stinking filthy and dirty but it is deeply spiritual mm. in one part of the of the river people are there's industrial laundries going on next to that there's funeral pyres going out on the water next to that there's people getting married there's people having ritual you know uh, baths and on the steps around it there's kids playing cricket and there's animals walking around it's just, it it's a bombardment of emotion but it's a complete acceptance in the east that death is part of life it's not separate whereas we're encouraged in the west to believe that death is something we can avoid you know or at least not talk about not talk about delay and yeah. it, it it's not part of our life i think i think that that that's a message that came through to me quite a lot so seeing her die in the way she died um slip away like that and being with her on that journey i think was very I I hope she was aware of the fact in some form or other that we we took her on that journey to to you know together and that they were all together with her. Thank you for sharing that. I know it's it's not easy. Uh the hardest thing to share with you was the is the day she went into the home. All the rest I find relatively 
comfortable with, you know. Can you share, can you think of some moments of light during that, from when she was diagnosed or you knew that you're starting, she's starting a journey with a very, with an end. What do you, do were the moments where you did something together and you felt? I, I, I was not, we didn't have a marriage where I was off playing golf all day, you know, and, and it, you know, I mean, I had a fairly substantial business and, and I worked very hard on it, but I tried and I was one of those people that if there was a foreign trip, I'd say someone else go on it. You know, I don't need to go on it. If I need to go on it, I'll go on it. But, you know, I've I, I always been happier at home than anywhere else. So we shared a huge amount and continue to do so. And a few weeks before lockdown was the bar mitzvah of our third grandchild. And that was lovely with all the family and everything. As I said, there were, there were, there were always individual interactions. We shared things. We had... Uh, her birthday, we got. She loved classical music, and we got a couple of cellists and a violinist came to play in the garden. It was a lovely summer. Her birthday's in June, but it was strange to see her as a completely independent person become dependent on me. That was that was a difficult shift. That was it was difficult for her, and it, in some ways, it was difficult for me. Not because she was dependent on me, but because I had to see her stripped of who she was and that's mm. not comfortable ever mm. so is diagnosis something that you say is very important now now there are there are signs that they're getting certain interventions that mm. if if done at an early stage in certain types of dementia yeah. could delay the onset of of some of the the worst side effects David, what was the most helpful thing for you as a carer that may be helpful to others? I can see that people's ability to articulate what you're going through, for me, that was the big step change, finding words when I don't have mm. them, mm. you know, and in, in the genius of other people. That's the wonder of great art. Yeah. And I think that that is a, a tool that I would... I personally would would find very interesting to cultivate and to explore further. And you are doing that through your website. Well, it's not a it's an open, it's a closed website. Oh, it's only for the people that I know because okay. I in in the way I introduce a poem sometimes. I mean, now it's less so. Now it's more of a diary, and certainly during certain periods and certain selections are very deeply personal um, and. I'm not sure how comfortable I'd feel about sharing those with everybody. Um, sharing them with my close mm. friends and my family is one thing. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think the tool that I have, yeah. I think is a is a it. I think w w could very well work with other people. Not everyone, but it could work as as another tool in the, you know, in the toolkit of yeah. of how one supports people. The good thing was it was something I could. Uh, <coughs> Excuse me, I could do on my own. Yeah. You know, in an evening I would just be exploring <coughs> either a piece of work and its provenance, its background, and discovered some amazing stories. Yeah. Before we finish, David, is there anything else that maybe we didn't get to that oh. you just feel it's really important for me I don't to know. say Have that? Have I missed any stages in it? No, just, it's, it's again, it's from a personal, your, it's your experience. Anything that you feel that you. 
having surgery. Perhaps in six months' time we can talk about the post, the afterwards, the morning, and the and how one dealt with the with the year there. We can, if but you want to. But that's another that's another story altogether, and it's not a story that's yet got its. You know, it's not 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 yet. Mm. It's still in work. You know, work in progress. In work in progress. It's still <laughs> Thank you, David. Very personal. Like you say, it is very different for for everybody. Um, but hearing somebody's story, there may be somebody there who will take whatever works for them mm. from this. So hopefully, it will help somebody. And very um, interesting and very privileged to be here. So thank you, David. Thank you, Drew. Thank you for letting me share my story, and I hope that it touches somebody somewhere along the line. Yeah. So until the next time, it is goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks, David.